And what does it what does it say on the screen? Oh shoot, that says Art House Drive-In? Splittooth Media's latest film podcast? Aren't we the the co-hosts of that podcast? Are you Robert? Are you T? Oh snap! Is that is that our faces up in the sky? Uh, looking pretty good, looking pretty good. I guess we'll be coming back here pretty uh, pretty often then, at least every week. At least every week, talking about at least one film or two short films, or I guess we'll be going on a on a journey through the world of our house film. I guess. Yeah, that's pretty. That's gonna be pretty cool. <laughs> Come along, everybody. More room in the drive-in. I don't know how we got here, but I love it. Welcome, everybody. Lovely to see you here. I Um, love seeing each one of your bright and shiny faces. (laughs) Individually in the drive-in uh my name's robert and welcome to the art house drive-in podcast mm-hmm. where we are going on a galactic expedition into the universe of uh avant-garde and experimental film although galaxies are smaller than it's chill it's chill uh my name's <laughs> yeah. t in case this is your first time joining us uh welcome if you're coming back seriously thanks for joining us again for episode six Thank you so much. We want as many people to come along on this journey uh, as possible. So it's it's great seeing people listening to our stuff. It's very heartwarming. Really, um, really is incredible. Um, also, uh, we're recording this on Valentine's Day. So happy <laughs> Valentine's Day to each and every one of you out there. We are lonely. <laughs> Talking about a really depressing film, but it's okay. <sighs> Um, which was not on purpose. That's just a coincidence, <laughs> weirdly enough. Uh, but uh, how are you? How are you doing today, T? I'm I'm doing good. Um, I've spent most of the day kind of like, well, not getting the film out of my head, but <laughs> trying not to focus on it on Valentine's Day. Um, I actually just started up a new Skyrim playthrough where I'm trying <sighs> to do the exact opposite of what I normally do: sword and board, smithing blocking like the absolute opposite of what i would like to do normally what about you it's one of the few games that really took over my life and and you know these days i'm reading a lot so i read uh a book recently called dream snake by vonda and mcintyre that won the nebula award and it's about uh this healer in a futuristic post-apocalyptic universe that heals people through snakes which is really interesting she like why is um, it always snakes she 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 has an alien snake that like soothes people when they're in pain almost like painkillers and she has um a cobra and a rattlesnake that she can mm. make like vaccines with she like pours powder down a the, like snake's mouth and it like produces a vaccine it's cr- it's a crazy book um it was really good i'm sure tell you what can you um can you perhaps send me a copy of that i think my mom would <laughs> yeah. love that book oh man so, so you all know his mom, my my auntie Stacy, is deathly afraid of snakes, like a mm-hmm. phobia of snakes. She would hate this book so much. The fact that we've so. said the word snake so many times in the intro probably means she's stopped listening at this point. 
she immediately would stop listening, which is <laughs> which is funny to me. And then the book I'm reading right now is uh, it's about nature, but it's very different. It's a uh, uh, Rachel Carson's seminal work, Silent Spring, which sort of uh, sparked the environmentalist movement in the '60s. So uh, it's kind of a book that I've been wanting to read for a while, but uh, it's also kind of sad because it's talking about DDT and pesticides and you know why don't we use ddt anymore i'm learning about it right now so i can tell you why they stopped using ddt in a very specific part of new jersey yeah i'm sure it's horrific like much of the things in this in this book I mean- but uh and today we are going to focus on a film called taste of cherry from director abbas kiristami so um why i chose this film is sort of uh multi-fold if that's a word so one growing up i really only watched like american cinema and american media like i didn't really have a lot of access to um, international cinema and iran has one of the the sort of deepest traditions of cinema of the last i'd say like 70 years some of the greatest filmmakers in the world have come from iran and if you lived in america most of your life and you didn't really have people that were in and though you i never knew before i got into film studies so iranian film is incredible so that's one of the reasons why um another reason is abbas kiristami is just one of my favorite directors in in general and taste of cherry is an incredible film and i think not only is it not you know Iranian cinema is you're not going to go to a regal really and see Iranian cinema it's very different in structure than a lot of the films I grew up watching so I think it's an important film to watch if you're starting to get into these sort of um, strange artsy films yeah which I mean is obviously what I'm doing here and right. it's yeah. it was really really interesting watching something that was so completely different than anything I had ever watched growing up um I want to say I enjoyed it because I really, truly did enjoy the movie for the film elements that I'm slowly beginning to learn. But, yeah. oh, boy, man, it's I a... needed to, like, watch cartoons or something afterwards. <laughs> I agree. I think I watched, like, a Let's Play or something right after yeah, I saw it, it yesterday. It's dark, dude. But it's so... The technique is so amazing, and Kiristami has such a definitive style in this film that... Um, for me, it's sort of like it doesn't distract from the seriousness of the film, but it's it makes it so worth it, um, which is another reason like it's okay to watch these movies that are so crushing in a in a more authentic way. Mm-hmm. Um, Similar to um, a Sink or Swim, another challenging yeah. film, just a little a little different uh, kind of challenging. Definitely, and um, if you've listened to the show before, you know that we do like a quick and dirty history of the director in the film. Never comes so out I'll as ju- quick and dirty as we want, but <laughs> no. But I'll do I'll do that now. So, history time. Abbas Kiristami, uh, born in nineteen forty and died actually kind of recently in twenty sixteen. Um, other than being a filmmaker, he was a poet, a photographer, a painter, a graphic designer. He was a true sort of multi hyphenate artist, like an ultimate creative i would say um and he's an incredibly prolific filmmaker but i will highlight some of the films that i've seen and i think some of the films that he's most known for so he's he's really well known for the cocare trilogy um which is uh three films obviously 
three films that are that are set in sort of the Kokare region in in Iran. So um, it started where's the, with where's the friend's house in 1987, uh, then Life and Nothing More in 1992, and Through the Olive Trees in 1994. And Kiarostami said this is not sort of a hard and fast trilogy, but because they're set in the the same region and because they're about a lot of the same characters, they're sort of lumped together. Um, where's the friend's house is actually about um, a child going on this epic journey to return the notebook of a friend so he doesn't get uh, reprimanded by his teacher. It's really heartwarming and hopeful. Um, and the second film is actually about um, Abbas Kiarostami, um, the character in this film, going to Coquer to try and find the the lead actor of Where's the Friend's House after like a devastating earthquake. Um it's really interesting. It sort of blends nonfiction and fiction film. And then Through the Olive Trees is about uh, the making of Life and Nothing More. But it's not a documentary. So again, it sort of blends fiction and nonfiction. And the character of Abbas Kiarostami is played by an actor. Um, so that's something that he really likes to do um, in his filmmaking is sort of blend the lines of, of what is, uh, quote, real and unreal. And another film that does that is Close Up from, in 1990, which is a favorite of mine, um, an incredible film. And then Certified Copy in 2010, which is pure fiction, and uh, 24 Frames in 2017, which um, is the most experimental film that I've seen from him that is meant to um, blend his love of photography and painting together. Um, it's incredible. It's h- sort of hard to get into, but once you get into it, it's hypnotic. And um, so Kiarostami was also part of the Iranian New Wave, um, which I'm certainly not an expert on, but I'll give sort of the Cliff Notes version of what it is. It started in the late 1960s, and it was it consists of people like Oscar Farhadi and Mohsen Makhmabov and Kiarostami, obviously, and Amir Naderi. Um, I know Oscar Farhadi's work pretty well. I know I love Kiarostami, obviously, but I definitely want to delve into this realm of cinema more because it's incredibly rich from what I've seen so far. Um, and so this brings us to Taste of Cherry, which came out in 1997. Um, and it is very famous because it was the first Iranian film to ever win the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. So that's a huge deal. Um, and especially at the time. Um, so it was very beloved by international audiences, but when it came to America, it had a very sort of divided perspective on it. So, um, I, I'm trying, I'll try not to be very bitter when talking about this. Um, I'll try and keep it in, but, um, doing a great job already. (laughs) Yeah. People like Roger Ebert, um, I'm going to say did not care for this film. He put it on, um, a list of his most hated films of all time which is uh, really shows what I think about Roger Ebert, to be honest with you, as, a, as a, uh, his taste in film. Mm. Um, but he complained, so let's use his own words, so I'm not really slandering the guy, because I think he was an intelligent person. It's just we have such different tastes in film. Um, he said, uh, I understand intellectually what Kiarostami is doing. I'm not impatiently asking for action or incident. What I do feel, however, is that Kiarostami's style here is an affectation. The subject matter does not make it necessary and is not benefited by it. So he's really... He's calling him out. He's just calling him like an artsy, an artsy, you know, guy that's obsessed with like flourish and technique and without substance. Like he's just, he's just another American film critic who is, is sort of trying to disparage a filmmaker that's trying to do something different um, or do something more complex or avant-garde. But Rob, they've always done it. They've always done it this way. Anything that's different is awful. 
And that's sort of a point of viewing that I wanted to talk about is that uh, this film technically is very different than everything I grew up with, certainly. I, I think, you know, that you grew up with in, in a formal sense, like structurally what this film is trying to do is very different um, than the films we grew up with in scope. Like this, this film is trying to like, you know, lift a boulder over its head of like all of human experience. Um, and Roger Ebert just wants to know, he just wants more info and he wants payoff and climax mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Um, so that's pretty much it about the history. I'm going to stop myself before I go on a crazy rant. Mm-hmm. Um, but T, share with me your synopsis of this film. So... The Taste of Cherry is a story about a man who is looking for someone to help him commit suicide. I don't believe that's a spoiler because, quite frankly, it's uh, it's probably in the actual summary of the movie on Criterion, uh, if you want to watch it there. Um, but he is not looking for someone to kill him. He is looking for someone to specifically bury him after he is dead. And so he drives around looking for lonely people specifically, uh, possibly because he thinks they might commiserate with him. It is hard to say. It's never. It's this is a movie that doesn't explain uh, too much of it. It needs you to fill that in yourself, and that goes kind of back to what uh, Rob was saying about um, the, the American film critic. So he asks uh, three people. He asks a young soldier who has recently been drafted. He asks a man of, of, of religious beliefs, a seminarian, and then an older man. Um, and in this film, he, it, which takes place almost entirely in his car, he takes these people for a drive, which, I mean, off the get-go, I straight up thought this man was a human trafficker. Uh, he struck me as an absolute sexual predator. Thank goodness he wasn't. That would make it an even more depressing film. So he takes each of these men for a ride in his car where he asks them to help him with this, explains sort of why he wants it to happen. He never goes into too much detail and is challenged kind of by their reactions to his request. Um... Each of them have different have different reactions, and it's a lot of him almost coming to grips with this. Uh, I really don't think I can say too much more without spoiling it, and um, I, I highly recommend you go and watch this for yourself, just because the amount that I want to spoil the end, ending of this should make you realize how good of a movie it was, even with such a depressing... A depressing um, storyline to it. I I just want to talk about it. <laughs> we can certainly talk about that in the analysis. So I think if um if you've tuned into the Art House Drive-In so far, synopsis part is really where we're gonna try and not spoil things. So that if after the synopsis you want to watch this film, then you can watch it and maybe go back and listen to the analysis because we're gonna be spoiling a lot of this film in the analysis portion. Because how can we talk about it uh, uh, if not? So yes. Uh, but we will artfully dance around the uh, ending and the more pertinent details so that uh, you've, you've got to do a little legwork as well. The analysis portion of these episodes, you know, we always want them to be the largest portion in the percentage. Um, so the first thing we're going to talk about, um, which we've talked about before in other films, is the relationship between the foreground and background in this film and where the camera is placed. Mm-hmm. So the camera is placed most of the time um, in the passenger seat of the car as Mr. Buddy is driving. 
Um, so in the background, you see the landscape sort of um, filtering by or passing by, and the foreground is completely static. So it creates this interesting interplay between background and foreground where there's a ton of motion in the background and zero in the foreground. And it mm -hmm. just creates this really sort of mind-bending space where you can sit and sort of meditate on, you know, all of the aspects of, like, Mr. Buddy, like his body language, yeah. his facial expression, his eyes. And it like. really adds a huge amount of intensity to each of his scenes because, I mean, for most of this, he's not asking them, like, he's not talking about, hey, help me kill myself the entire time. He asks very normal questions like, how are you? Are you well? He actually says that a lot. Um like, do you have family? Or, or do you? What do you do for work? Um, but he, his deliveries are just so intense, and the camera is forcing you to stare at him while he's saying this. And there is some shot, reverse shot too, of the people that he's talking to, and it's the same feeling where um, you're looking for like the minute movements of their faces. You know, these are the events in the film is like the change in you know facial expression the change in tone of voice is so um momentous in those moments yeah in a, in a movie where there is not a lot of action as we are used to seeing it you, it forces you to pay attention to these things because otherwise you're just looking at a guy going for a drive and and that's really communicated by the camera placement but it's also communicated by the pacing of the editing too right like he chooses to have all of these long takes um, he chooses to let people linger and and sit with these scenes. Like, uh, if we're going to reference another ADH or AHDI, I got to get the acronym for a show. Adi. Just episode. call it Adi. <laughs> yeah. Is, um, it makes me feel like La Jete, like in that way where you're where you're sitting with scenes and you're letting them grow and develop. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it's incredibly satisfying when he gives the viewer that freedom, you know. Yeah. Um, and And with this you know, more meditative mindset, you start to also appreciate how of you know, how amazing Kiristami was at filming landscape or building the portrait of a landscape. I mean, most of the time you're in this sort of dirt quarry and it is just stunningly beautiful how he photographs it. Mm hmm It it is really impressive how you can take something as ordinary as somebody driving up a dirt path and just make it look like a work of art. Um, it reminded me in a sense uh, of the beginning of The Shining, where it just follows them for a long time driving to the Overlook Hotel through the Rocky Mountains, I think. But uh, in this context, there are these rolling hills of sort of the outskirts of the city, and he is able to film the, like, the contours of these hills so interestingly. He shoots them from below, and you have this sense of just like looking up into this blue sky. He sh he shoots them from above, um, and it looks almost like a maze, mm -hmm. you know, in that way. And then there's a few shots you know, where it's like filmed from the front of the car as yeah. it's driving, which is an even wilder perspective because it's still yeah. you still just hear these two guys having a relatively normal conversation. Yeah, and and when you're looking at this labyrinth too, there are moments where he opens up into this like huge vista this huge skyline of the city where um there's this interplay between just like um unlimited depth of field like out into infinity um and really like worming um the care the character's way through this uh like maze of of paths 
which is so beautiful in this film. And I mean, other than just the camera angles and the shot composition, he's so great at like, um, like I, this might be because of color correction, you know, afterwards, but he's so great at picking out like all of the earthy tones of the landscape, the green of the trees, the golden like leaves of the trees as well. Like he, he just has this eye for color, which I definitely attribute to his, his, his past in like painting and graphic design for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you could definitely tell he was paying careful attention to how each of these shots were going to be portrayed, and I'm sure he must have taken a million other shots that he just deemed probably weren't good enough for, yeah. uh, for the film. And uh, if I ever get the privilege to to teach like a landscape film class, this film is in it. You know what I mean? Or at least one, if not more, Kurosawa films to me. Um, cause he's just amazing at sort of framing his landscape. And another part that I love from this movie, which does connect to, to pacing and it does connect to camera angles and shot composition, um, are his focus on these sort of minute little events that become really the, these spaces of peace and meditation in this film. Um, mm-hmm. there are lots of shots of sort of birds flying in the sky, Lots of shots of uh, stones falling down hills and dirt falling down hills yeah. and the dirt. I mean, they're you know, in a quarry. Is, you know, yeah, it's a quarry. So you see like dirt and rocks being put on conveyor belts and processed. And um, there's a sequence in particular after um, the seminarian sort of denies him, you know, his help that he just like sits amidst this gigantic machinery and it's this like orchestra of movement and color and sound mm-hmm. it's just incredible um so mo- like events that wouldn't be events in other films are are big events in this film yeah and actually uh speaking of that one particular scene um there's one shot as well in that uh in that exchange where he you don't see him um uh, but you see his shadow and the shadow of the digger uh, dropping stone off and it just envelops him and it is I mean it's painting a pretty obvious picture it's it's not going for subtlety but no. I, I thought it was still a really really aesthetically pleasing shot if I had to explain to someone what visual poetry meant I would use that sequence mm-hmm. um, because I think visual poetry is a hard thing to describe to someone um because it's very abstract and it's rare in in mainstream cinema in general, right? Yeah. I mean, um, but in these moments, it's so powerful and it sort of shows his background as a poet as well. We've talked about him as a painter, as a photographer, but him as a poet is is, is very important. Yeah. Um, well, actually, going back to the smaller events for just a quick second, um, yeah. one of the ones that actually, I mean all of them affected my viewing in some way shape or form but the very first time when he's driving the car and he drives up to the spot where his he wants his grave to be um on this hill underneath this tree as he's driving up you see this flock of crows and ravens um just taking off and this is still at the point of the film where i'm not sure if this guy is just luring people to this place to kill them and you see these these birds, these specifically birds associated with death, flying away. And I was like, yep, that's it. Dude's a goner. Dude's an absolute goner. And when I realized he wasn't, it threw me for such an absolute loop Yeah. that, I mean, if anything, I think that made me enjoy the movie more, that he didn't tell us what was going on at first. 
Right. I completely agree. I mean, I love that moment as well. And I think this is a good part to, to discuss Mr. Buddy and his interactions with each person and, uh, and what Kiristami doesn't tell you. Like, you know, no background about the protagonist, mm-hmm. nothing. You don't know what he does. You barely learn you his name know. until like 25 minutes in. Yeah. And you, and you really only know it because he wants, uh, the people to call it out to make sure, uh, that if you know he don't be dead if he's not dead he if he's not dead in the grave to wake him up or whatever um so each interaction like his interaction with the young man is so intense Ugh. and he's sort of trying to cajole him into helping him um and this this the the like how, what's a good word for this the formula of communication is so different than with the seminarian where he's sort of pleading with the seminarian to, uh, seminarian to help him. Um, and it's a much more equal footing. Yeah. And then when he's talking with the old man at the end, it's completely different where he barely speaks at all. And the old man is just speaking most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's these contrasts that really add a lot of breadth and add a lot of um, diversity to each interaction that he has with every single person that he talks to. Like there are other people that he talks to in the film very briefly and every single conversation is completely different. Yeah, until he starts speaking to the seminarian, uh, everything is very... The power dynamic is very one-sided. When he's talking to the the kid, the security guard, it's very much a place of like him questioning these people and trying to, like you said, cajole them into you know, just going for a drive. It ain't no big thing. Just come, up, come with me to our drive-in. Everything will be perfectly yeah. fine. Wink, wink. Yeah. Yeah, that's the phrase that I was looking for, pyrodynamic. That's the that's the perfect phrase to talk about it because um, the conversation's not really... The words are... Like, he's a great screenwriter. He was also a screenwriter. I mean, this dude was, like, every you know creative that you could possibly be on a film set. He's a triple um, threat. Yeah, but... So his dialogue is great, but it's it's what's behind the dialogue. It's the power dynamics. It's his tone of voice that is important in all of these different conversations because they are talking about similar things the whole time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to talk about one moment in particular where uh, for most of the film, he's just in his car. And there's a moment where he's out of his car for a very long time at the end when he's trying to go back to see the old man. And I just wanted to talk about how crazy it is that a filmmaker could make someone leaving a car so important in this film uh by filming so much in his range rover as well it's like a nice car um the moment sponsored by range rover where he leaves that convenient space that he has complete control over um is so fascinating to me i I was just this is the second time i saw this movie um and i couldn't stop thinking about that and also i wanted to say Mm. The second watch on this film is completely different than the first watch because the first watch you're wondering so much you don't know anything. Yeah, you were and saying the this. Watch, um, you were saying that incredible. before we started recording, and it makes me really wish I had taken the time to do a second watch because I definitely enjoyed it. I for sure don't understand it as well as I probably should if we're going to be talking about something like this. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I thought it was incredible on my first watch, but on the second watch, it's just, it's so much better. Like, I think that's, again, when I look for filmmakers, uh, there was this famous critic back in the day named Pauline Kael, and um, whether she was serious about this or not, I don't know. I don't really care, but uh, 
she used to say, oh, I never watch a movie uh, more than once or you don't need to. Like if a movie is good, you should be able to watch it once and get all of the experience that you possibly could out of that. And that sort of pigeonholes you into watching directors that are simple. Mm-hmm. And Kiristami, if anything, is not simple. So to me, Taste of Cherry is going to be better every single time I watch it. Yeah. You know, if I watch it eight times, it's going to be the best time I watched it on the eighth time to me because I'm so much more familiar with this technique and I can see things that I didn't see before. It's like you know? people who don't want to reread a good book. Like, right. it's I've crazy. never understood that. I probably yeah. read every book I I've ever owned like at least three or four times. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, and these are all the directors that we're going to watch on this show or, or talk about on this show, on this show are going to honestly be those type of directors because those it's because of me. Sorry. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's also these films are complex and complexity. You know, you need more, to put more work into seeing these films. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The films that I might be suggesting are still ones that I'd rewatch, but not because of complexity. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the last sort of points of viewing that I wanted to talk about was I love films that have sort of designs on your consciousness. And this is sort of, this is a gray area, so I'm going to try and be as clear as possible in talking about this. design on your consciousness. Design on your consciousness. That while I'm watching these films, how I look at the world sort of changes whether it's just for that moment when I'm watching the film or it lingers afterwards, I feel like I, when I watch Taste of Cherry, how he he highlights sort of the beauty of the everyday is something that I would hope I could take into my waking life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an aspiration. It's not something that, you know, you're not going to watch this film and it's like taking Advil or something and you're just going to see everything different. It's, no. you know, it's something to think on when you're walking around, you know, the city at like 11 a.m. Well, I mean, or 11, 11 a.m. <laughs> yeah. During yeah, the hustle and bustle of the city on the go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, all, all jokes aside, I mean, that's um, that's the whole point of the f- of films in general, right? To give you an experience rather than rather than just to show you something to have you feel something. Right. I completely agree. I mean, that's all the films that, you know, or most of the films that we're going to watch are that are important to me have done that for me in my life. So I think, I think one, one of my favorite parts of this film, and I think one of the parts you found really interesting too, is the, the dynamic between Mr. Badi and the older man. Like, how did you feel about that sequence? I very much enjoyed it. Um, because it was such a drastic, uh, contrast from everything that we'd seen throughout the entire film. Whereas for the entire first half of the film, it's Mr. Abadi really just taking charge of the conversation with his passengers. This is the first time where his uh, uh, the old man who he's been talking to is telling him his life story. Um, and Mr. Abadi is silent. This guy is talking to him about how he had attempted to commit suicide before. And that was entirely changed because while he was uh while he was trying to commit suicide he uh how to say that um uh, i think the branch broke yeah so the the branch broke and when he went up there to try to tie it himself he it, it he it was in a mulberry tree and he and he ate it and it kind of stopped and forced him to change perspectives and then a bunch of kids came 
And so he's telling the, him this story about how a day that was set up to be the day that he died turned into a day that he came home with fruit for his wife. Um, and yeah. after telling him this, uh, he he's obviously telling uh, Mr. Buddy all the things that he will miss uh, if he goes through with this. But he's also saying, like, hey, I'm a friend. I'm here for you no matter what you try decide to do. Um and even like while he's talking to him, he's like, "Please say something. Like, if you don't say something, yeah. I'll keep talking. But like, I'd really appreciate it." Yeah, um, and he even says, uh, "I mean, the title comes from the conversation where he, uh, the old man, says like, uh, do you want to give up the taste of cherries?'" Roll credits. And I, I've been thinking about that line a lot. I've been thinking about their conversation. Cherries are a good. Lot. Cherries are delicious, but. I think if you want to make a one-to-one comparison between Badi's journey and the old man's story is that the old man was able to see the beauty around him. Like he talked about um, seeing the sunrise. He saw, he talked about seeing this incredible landscape around him and eating the mulberries and that they, they were so delicious and he brought it home and sort of gave happiness to his wife. Um, he shook the tree and the mulberries fell and like the, the kids who came by ate them. So it was like, it was this just lovely story of of almost like community, but also sort of his changed perspective, and you could you could see that in sort of the presentation of Badi's journey, like especially in the machinery scene we're talking about. That like he could sit down and see the beauty of a rock quarry, you know what I mean? Something that uh, you know where dirt is being thrown, <laughs> dirt and rocks are. Being Listen, I might be around. biased, but a rock quarry is pretty beautiful. <laughs> yeah, but like looking at a dump truck. And thinking that, like, the dump truck dumping a bunch of dirt onto a hill is, like, this moment of of beautiful clarity mm-hmm. is sort of similar to the old man sort of eating the mulberries and thinking that, you know, his life is different now. I mean, yes, but one thing that the movie doesn't quite take in... Well, it, it explicitly doesn't go in this direction, but it never tells you Mr. Body's story. So... yeah. Um, it's, it's hard to say whether, um, the old old man story really lands or resonates with him because we, the viewer have no idea if, if there are any similarities between their two stories. We don't even know what drove him to that point. And I think that's an important part that we've sort of touched on, but not really where uncertainty is a big part of this film Mm, and what what Kiristami doesn't tell you is important, which is why people like Roger Ebert hated this film because information is a big part of, of cinematic presentation. And he deliberately withholds that, but he does it in sort of an artful way. That's a dumb phrase, but he, he does it in an interesting way where the absence of information creates intrigue, at least for me. No, oh, um, I 100% agree. Um, while I kind of shared the sentiment that I wish I knew more, mm-hmm. it, made the viewing of it more satisfying um and more more intimate and engaged because i it felt like i was part of this journey where i'm trying to figure out what happened to get to this point and it sort of begs the question where ooh, another point of viewing that i didn't think about where do we get information from cinema i think most of the time it's just thrown at us that's how i like it Where it's from dialogue, it's from action, it's from events, 
information in this film comes across in like the intensity of Mr. Buddy's eyes mm-hmm. or um, the tone of voice when he's getting choked up when he's talking to the seminarian and almost starts to cry yeah. or the birds flying overhead or, you know, visual poetry, like the shadow being placed on the, the dirt falling. Mm-hmm. And that is where we're getting this the information from this film. I'm glad we talked about this because I didn't think yeah, about this before. Yeah. Can, can you imagine but, how like unsatisfying or dissatisfying or whichever word it is if in the very beginning there was like a minute and a half of narration where it where it told us like the whole story up to this point if it just star wars style said what what had been going on and then like fade to black um and then cut to him if anything i think learning what happened before this movie would make the actual viewing worse hundred percent and you and roger ebert would have words if if you told that to him or critics like him there are a lot of well i mean there's plenty of people alive today that think like that and that's sort of you know why a lot of this film is relegated but i'm not going to go on that rant because i refuse to go on that rant i'm going to be a good boy this is where i'll give the concession this is the last point of view this type of film maybe isn't for everyone and that's also okay like you know you know marvel movies are not for me Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna you know they're for people and they satisfy them this film satisfies me on like the deepest most spiritual level that i can have as a agnostic boy yeah you know what i mean like artistically but i understand if people think it's boring i get it you know i get it it's okay um but i think that even if you think it's boring you should be able to appreciate sort of the technique as well. Sure. And, and Hey, even if you do think it's boring, I think watching it and coming to that conclusion is equally important. Uh, because by learning what you don't like, you learn a little something about yourself anyway. It doesn't cost nothing just to watch it a little bit of your time and uh, criterion login. But if you have a cousin with one already, well, it doesn't (laughs) cost anything. (laughs) And I won't go on the slow cinema rant, but you, you know, you listeners, if you stay with us, I will certainly go on a slow cinema rant and what that means. This is my, (laughs) this is my little cliffhanger. Oh, you know, you're going to know it soon and you'll wish you didn't because you'll see me go on a big rant, but I won't go on the slow cinema rant until we get to either Bersan or Bellatar because those, you know, I'm leaving you with a cliffhanger. I'm leaving you on the edge. Um, it's a stupid film theory. <laughs> Let me, that's my spoiler. It's a th- film theory I don't like. And uh, uh, I won't talk about it now. Perfect. But it has to do with this kind of film. Awesome. All right. Um, well, I think that basically ties up everything we really wanted to talk about here. Um, but what yeah. can you tell us about the movie for next week? So next week, we are going to take a hard left to just just a bonanza a fun bonanza we're going to like a party where we're going to watch the film house the japanese film the very you know the famous japanese horror film house which is i described in um episode four as uh, scooby-doo on psychedelics so <laughs> and, I, I just uh, want to just go back a second clarify just one point um <laughs> yeah, so yeah. we're going from a totally depressing film to yeah a rave um and this rave is a japanese horror film it's a japanese horror film that is like is to me live action scooby-doo on steroids and psychedelics they had so fun. live action scooby-doo on steroids and psychedelics <laughs> thank you very much and it was it's much better amazing and quotable and if we don't cover this on this show it won't surprise <laughs> me but it'll be very sad 
Dude, you're going to love House. Yeah. You're going to love House. I already do love it. It's the one with the doctor, right? Oh, yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, it's just the Japanese uh, adapted, Robert uh, TV version. Is that his name? I have no idea. Great actor. But you are going to love House. I'm oh, really no, excited it's going to be watch another film. Cadenson. <laughs> Christian Aidson for it. I mean, this is really good. But, uh, but you're going to be, you're going to, when we do the next episode, you're probably going to be super high energy because you're like, this is no, this is your jam. Like, this is a film you're going to watch, like, I think a bunch of times just throughout your life because you're going to be like, this is the gym jams. This is my gym jams. And uh, where can we find this lovely gym jammy film? So you can find House on Criterion Channel for sure. Sponsor us, Criterion, please. Um but but I'm sure you could also so I'm sure you could also find it on like Amazon Prime Rent. I don't know. You can find Ooh. it places. It's it's a well yeah, I don't, it's a well known film. It has a beautiful poster. It's an amazing poster. So um, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we're kind of uh, you know, we expected people to listen, but we're really happy with the views that we've been getting, and we're glad that people seem to be digging it. So uh, yeah. So. Uh, Honestly, if you've been enjoying this, uh, just let us know. Um, follow us on Spotify now, um, yeah. and uh, just you know, uh, leave leave us a comment. Just let us know what you think. If uh, you can't stand my voice and you demand that I'm replaced, <laughs> let us know. I'll ignore it, but it'll be good good to hear that kind of critique. And feel free to give film recommendations. I Absolutely, mean, this lineup is not. Uh, concrete we're not hard and fast sticking to a certain lineup so if you think there's a film that we should cover it would be awesome to cover you know please comment below because you know i would love and i just love film wrecks to be honest with you just show me you know tell me some cool stuff tell me a bunch of iranian films i haven't seen before like i said before please like i'm actually asking for that because i would love some even if it doesn't make it to the podcast you'll at least know that we we both had to watch it (laughs) that's true um, so thanks everybody. Uh, this has been awesome. This has been a fun episode and I'm, I love this expedition we're on. Mm-hmm. Same here. And I'll be looking forward to, uh, doing the same thing again next week. You've been listening to a split tooth media presentation. You can find us on Letterboxd as Arthouse Drive-In and on Twitter at Arthouse Inn. That's right. We can't change it. Feel free to join us in our little car as we talk about films each week, give or take, probably.